Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Uh, this is the first new episode we've recorded in, well, at least with with my regular movie reviewing buddy, Alan Appel, in well over a month. So, Alan, it's I, I've missed hearing your dulcet tones. I guess I haven't heard you yet. Hopefully you still have those dulcet tones. But thanks for coming to the studio. It's, it's a pleasure to have you back here. Always a pleasure. And, uh, and uh, congratulations <laughs> on your... Um, your extensive new nightlife. You've become a night crawler. That's a good movie, right? That night crawler. That film. was a good movie. But yeah. you know what? I think maybe we just won't give any more details as to what my my new nightlife profession is. We'll just leave that in the air. Okay. Now, so, I've been doing a lot of reporting, so right. thank you. It's been it's been great. A lot of stuff to write about with the city budget and all. But today we are not talking about uh, the. <laughs> We're talking the, about the machinations inside of New Haven City Hall, but instead we are convening the Central Committee of the. Uh, of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union to talk about the death of Stalin. And a, we won't make any comparisons between <laughs> the, the, the common turn and the Board of Alders. <laughs> right. that, that's totally up to you. Yes. Uh, th- this, is, this is definitely a movie that demands um, a certain amount of reflection as to its universality, despite the very specific historical context in which it takes place, but we'll try to keep uh, New Haven city politics out of it. Uh, so, The Death of Stalin is a new, uh, it's very black political satire from writer-director Armando Iannucci, uh, a, a Scottish filmmaker who is also the kind of creative entity behind the show Veep, uh, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, as well as uh, other kind of very sharp-tongued British political satires like In the Loop. This one takes place uh, in Moscow in 1953 in the days leading up to and immediate, immediately following the death of Joseph Stalin, the kind of supreme leader and dictator and general secretary of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union from the 1920s through the 1950s. The movie follows Stalin's closest cohort of advisors and fellow Central Committee members as they figure out on the fly how, oh, how do you replace someone who has spent three decades ruling uh, through a combination of uh, terror and complete cult of personality. Uh, as you probably uh, would suspect, based on what I've said thus far about a movie that is all about uh, mid, you know, 1950s Moscow, terror, kind of mass assassinations and, and you know, secret prisons, this is a comedy starring some, you know, very recognizable uh, English language uh, American and British comedians. We have... Uh, the lead role, Nikita Khrushchev, played by Steve Buscemi. We have Lavrenti Beria, played by Simon Russell Beale, Georgi Malenkov, Jeffrey Tambor, um, and uh, Molotov, played by uh, Michael Michael Palin. He of the uh, um, oh, why why am I blanking on the name of the very famous comedic British comedic group that brought us Monty Python? Oh, um, they are Monty Python. They are the Monty Python. <laughs> brought us Monty Python. He right. of Monty Python fame right. plays uh, plays the the older uh, kind of befuddled Molotov. So, Alan, this movie is all about um, political machinations uh, in a you know a moment of a succession crisis, a moment of regime change. In a political system that rewards the craven and the power-hungry over those beholden to any kind of public responsibility, to any kind of sense of decency or honesty, um, did this movie strike you as a, uh, as a distant you know, relic and difficult you know, to wrap your head around in 2018, or did it seem like uh, the dacha of 1953 Moscow could easily be... 
any any one of uh, you know take take your um, kind of political regime in crisis pick uh, whether it be the Trump administration or anywhere else. Did this seem like a relevant movie to you, or was it just kind of a curiosity? Well, well, that was a kind of afterthought. I think uh, after I left the movie. Rather dumbfounded, I, I must say. Uh, I was trying to ask myself, wh- why did he do this movie? Um, and, uh, and, and I was trying to see if, uh, if, we, if we've reached that point with uh, the Trump administration or with Vladimir Putin. Um, I, I don't think so, fortunately, at least not today. We have to turn on the news and, and find out. But, but what struck me in your introductory remarks and, and what makes this movie really interesting to me is you, you called it a comedy, um, which I, I guess it is, uh, it's, but the, uh, my sense of, 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 of history, Soviet history, just the little I know is that, uh, this is one of the most terrible moments, uh, in the, uh, this is, um, uh, you forgot to mention that the the aspects of the comedy are there that are people are being shot even while the main dialogue is uh, I guess that's supposed to be part of the humor quote unquote so uh, people are being shot people are rolling down the steps and the whole atmosphere of this comedy is that at any any moment if you say the wrong thing uh, uh, you know the uh, if you if you have made a joke the previous night um, that did not amuse. Uh, Stalin, as the Steve Buscemi is, goes home to his wife Nina Khrushchev, and he makes her take dictation as to what he said and how Stalin reacted, so he could prepare for the next morning's banter. I mean, yeah, that's and funny. these these are jokes as like you know disposable yeah. and mundane. Right. It's like someone put an orange in my or a tomato in my pocket. Right. Stalin laughed. Right. Make a note. Do that again. Yeah, tomatoes are good. <laughs> Made so, a joke about the train. Stalin didn't right. laugh. So Don't then, bring it up. So again. then for the next. At 15 minutes in the movie, you have these guys with a running gag. They have a tomato in their pocket because it just might come in handy to amuse this uh, this dictator. But he- here's the 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 larger point I'd like to raise, and uh, you know, see what you think about it. Is um, <clears throat> can you make farce out of w- if out of terror? I mean, that's what the challenge of the movie is. Uh, you said you called it a comedy. Well, that's true, but we all know that it, and, and and that it's based on well as, as the movie as i understand it is actually based on a uh, a graphic novel which itself is obviously based on history i mean there's one gag for example about when uh, the doctor's plot which is a horrible incident you know just a wipeout of thousands of jewish doc- doctors mainly jewish doctors i can't remember quite what the historical circumstances are but stalin has the stroke and of course the look for a doctor and there is no doctor, and the only ones around are like uh, uh, ones who are too young and ones who are too old. So Stalin's daughter comes and finally looks at the doctors that um, that that Beria and Malenkov have assembled to treat Stalin, and she says, "Oh, you're no good. You're too old. You're too young. You don't know anything. Where are the doctors?" And of course, I believe some of those lines are also, <laughs> "You're mostly hair." He says to a, a your hair. suit one, "You you look like you're dead to a particularly old one." Now you know that's sort of funny. <laughs> But you have and to for have... listeners, I am laughing as Alan is re- recalling this scene. So clearly, this is a movie that uh, instilled quite a bit of. Yeah, but if you've read Nadja Mandelstam's, you know the great poet Asif Mandelstam's widow's uh, wife, uh, it wasn't very funny. Uh, it was. It was. You know. Then this this movie um, assumes that there's uh, 
uh, if you take the terror, the, the, the fact that you, if you can be on a list in the movie, the running gag of the movie is, are you on the list? Are you on the new list of those to be assassinated? I mean, the premise of the film is, um, can you take that, uh, those, that terror and exaggerate it so much that it will be, um, it, it will turn, it it will turn from, um, the horrors of fascism into the Marx brothers. See, and I don't know if that works. See, I have, uh, okay. I have a few, uh, responses to that and also a few points of disputation, if you will. I would very much disagree that these are exaggerations. I think that part of the power of this movie and the very delicate, but I think successful balance of, of comedy and terror is that it seems to be, again, you know, I'm not a Soviet history scholar and I certainly would not want to be beholden to every historical aspect referenced in the movie. But from what I understand, the actions and terrors described in this movie are very true to what happened in real life. The, the secret prisons, the disappearances, the, you know, massacres of doctors and the kind of mass rape of, of women, of, of, you know, young girls and older women brought in to testify against, against loved ones. All of that is included in this movie. And I, I think that what is so horrifying about it is that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to be exaggerated in order for us to find it so, so shocking and almost unbelievable. It's one of those things where, you know, why I think this is such a perfect setting for this movie. And I think maybe the word that best describes the type of humor that Inuchi is going after is absurdity. Um, in that this would be complete, you know, this is, this is pushing the bounds of fiction if it weren't, if it weren't real, if this wasn't actually the type of kind of three decade terror uh, that uh, that Stalin and his closest advisors uh, led for the you know first half of of the twentieth century. But but Tom, I, I would I would take issue with a couple of things. The, the facts are true, but I, I and I, oh, wait, I, I, but I, 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 have, I haven't spoken yet about why I think the humor works in the context of those facts. And let me just very very quickly interject and say that. I think that the, you know, there are more familiar kind of slapstick gags in this movie, such as, you know, all of these, uh, you know, older, uh, you know, again, very craven, transparently power-hungry men kneeling in a puddle of urine to, you know, to lament the death of their supreme leader. Uh, and they're making these, you know, big ostentatious displays of sorrow. And then they realize that they're dealing in, you know, kneeling in a puddle of urine. And so their, uh, their superficial, you know, icky response to that is, you know, all of the, all of the sorrow disappears. Um, it's, it's no longer uh, any kind of attempt to display what they think should be felt at this moment. But they're like, oh, I'm dealing in, you know, I'm, it's it's, some, it's almost a, ch- a childish gag of having someone you know sit in like in in urine and then respond to that. But I think that the what those types of very broad kind of slapstick gags reveal in the context of this broader terror uh, and in their pursuit for power is that you know what drives the most cravenly power hungry is is nothing you know, nothing in the world except to be one step ahead of the person to, to your right or left. And when you assemble an entire government, an entire political system that is, um, that is run by and dependent upon people who only long for power for power's sake, you get something that is simultaneously terrible and laughably inept. And that these people, they... They don't, this is not, you know, some great experiment in trying to level, you know, economic inequality across one of the biggest countries in the world. It's just about these people trying to be one step ahead of the person to their right for one minute. 
and then the next minute they're they're going to be toppled. I think there's a lot of you know very sad and unfortunate humor in that, but the way that they bumble towards that success. I mean, we laugh at the Doctor Strange love. We laugh at Mel Brooks as the producers. I think that this is a satire in that vein of saying terrible things happen. The terrible people that do them, uh, <laughs> they can be pretty funny to watch sometimes. Well, I, I know I would just take a take issue with a lot of that. I mean, here's here's the difference difference between the producers and uh, um, and this movie, or even something like Wag the Dog, yeah, or even even uh, I haven't seen it all, but uh, his uh, but Ianucci's previous In the Loop, uh, which deals with more or less uh, uh, unknown or nameless uh, ma- managerial types in the State Department. The difference is that we're dealing with real historical figures, every single one of them, Nikita Khrushchev, Nina Khrushchev, Malenkov, and um, we, we, we certainly should talk about uh, Beria, the uh, head of the NKVD, who in many ways is um, bel- lends humanity to the, he's such a monster, even by the lights of the others, that he puts them in perspective and sort of helps us uh, kind of inhabit the world of the Bushemik and the other characters. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that these are real historical characters who um, Iannucci has, uh, as they struggle for power and, get, as you say, getting a step ahead of each other to, in, in the Central Committee, it, it, turns them in, it turns these guys into um, uh, a bunch of kids who are trying to um, you know, uh, r- run for president as opposed to vice president on the high school student council. And I, I mean, that's really what the SNL level of the humor is here. And so I ask myself, to what end? But the movie doesn't let us forget the consequences of that high school pettiness because we see. But we know the, it. We, we know see it. the terror happening simultaneously. Well, what? You, but how is that terror conveyed? That you, you know, you have these guys arguing about who's going to sit where at the meeting and who's going to raise their hand first, while people are rolling down the steps and a guy is taking a pistol to somebody else's head. I mean, to me, what that does is it it it, it anesthetizes terror uh, to to me as a viewer. It says, well. Golly, that that was terrible, but it sure was funny. Hmm. I, I think that I, I think that for whatever uh, for whatever laughter the movie generates, and it did generate some laughter in me. Um, I think it takes a it, it you you pay a price in um, in in um, uh, as I say uh, uh, anesthetizing or making you forget how really terrible. That was, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, the scene about those doctors, you're hairy and so on and so forth. I mean, what's, yeah, it, it's a joke, but, what, you know, to, to what end? I mean, what, what, what's that going to do to people who, for example, are going to, younger people who are going to get their first exposure to Soviet history from the movies? Let's, let's go to I don't, the... I don't think that's a very good introduction. All, all of these very valid points. I, I disagree uh, with your... Um, your interpretation of the depiction of violence here as anesthetizing, because I think that we live in a, you know, this is not something new to our current movie moment, but, you know, I am much more wary of the effect that violence in, you know, the Marvel blockbuster movies have upon a general public than violence in something like this. Because when you have the mass anonymous destruction of entire, like, cities with nothing but, like, the twitch of some superhero's finger, and then we're on to the next, you know, battle royale, I think that that is what truly, uh, you know, to the extent that culture has any, you know, this is a long standing fight, but to the extent that culture has any actual kind of material impact on our understanding and tolerance for violence in the real world, I think stuff like that, you know, makes it look 
cool and a part of like you know the fantasies that we imagine for uh you know what kind of life we hope to lead here i actually think there's something really audacious about um about daring people to laugh at the most terrible violence and even giving us the fodder for laughter the more like you know conventional again those slapstick routines with the son of stalin you know bursting in and in the middle of the autopsy and saying you know these scientists are filling my father's head with american lies you know they're legitimate you know very funny bits of dialogue bits of physical humor but then you know thinking about that opening scene in particular the juxtaposition of this absurd recreation of a symphonic performance in order to placate stalin side by side with a rounding up, you know, a mass rounding up of people in Moscow to go off to, you know, these these torture chambers that we then see over the course of the movie. I think it actually does quite the opposite of anesthetizing. It shows how in this world, especially in these totalitarian regimes, um, you know, terror and madness and absurdity exist side by side. That's kind of what these things are predicated upon. Um, <laughs> hmm. The... My, the uh, some, something seems to happen. Let me uh, turn it off and then turn it on again. You want to say one more thing? Oh, you may. You know, why don't you? Could you pull another mic closer to you? Uh, I don't know if it's within arm's distance, and I will uh, reset, as they say in the biz, for a second. Uh, oh, let me let me see what uh, what microphone you are on. And you are listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Alan Appel about. Uh, the death of Stalin, uh, and, and a, whether it's funny or not, and whether and whether it's funny or not, but also but I think. But maybe you turn the microphone off because <laughs> you didn't want to, in an authoritarian gesture, you you wanted to eliminate my response. But you know, I am very, uh, you know, I I'm I'm very curious about um, uh, maybe this. Uh, you know, we don't ever talk about generational differences here between you and me. But my son-in-law, who's older than you, but st- but still far younger than me, loves this kind of uh, stuff. Um, you know, loves uh, the, there's a there's a Netflix series on uh, um, about a Russian invasion of Norway. That's on, I forget the mm-hmm. name of it, but it uh, we were watching it together, and he loves to watch um, people in power who like to present themselves as stern and authoritative and uh, under control. He loves to watch them making fools of themselves. Sure. And I, I'm, I, I, and I mean, I think there's the, a certain post-Watergate skepticism of right. anyone in power and the right. duplicity of their motives. But also, I so mean, we that, don't need to... Is that what the humor is? Well, uh, tell me, I mean, do you find Dr. Strangelove funny and comparable to this in any way? Well, you know, I, I do. I, I, I do. And I, I think it's, uh, and, and, you know, that leads me to ask, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about the theory of satire, which I, I'm intrigued by. Um, yeah, I do find Strange Love interesting. Uh, Could you get a bit more head on on the mic? It's okay. Thanks. Is that better? So, um, and and again, the the thing about the, the Strange Love is is that uh, you know these are not these are not sat these are not like a satire is a clay. These are not named characters. Uh, if anything, I mean, you I talk think, about exaggerations. The characters in that movie, oh, are, totally. You know, Buck Turgidson oh. and Strange Love himself. Well, that's why I'm I'm freer to enjoy that because I'm not looking at somebody who, uh, you know, who might be um, Harry Truman or or Henry Kissinger, uh, uh, even though maybe that was uh, probably inspired to some extent by that. But I just. Uh, you know, I just do wonder. You now, laughter is is like food. I mean, it, there's no accounting for taste. But but I do think that there is um, some pleasure uh, that my son-in-law at least gets in watching these 
people uh, kind of behind the scenes. That's what, of course, you get in mm-hmm. Veep and all this kind of stuff. But what's the, you know, what's the, um, what's the point of it except for you to feel that they're like me and therefore, uh, and therefore what? I mean, I don't, I don't understand what, um, what's in ennobling is not the right word about what we're supposed to take away from this or, or, or when we see people displaying themselves this way um uh and there's a very somber moment at the end of of um the death of stalin in which you know the uh you know how we used to analyze the, the there was so little information coming out of soviet russia uh, people had spent endless amount of time analyzing who was sitting in what row as the parades went by. And so we, at the end of death of Stalin, we see Bushemi, uh, who has emerged as Khrushchev to, to get control over the committee sitting in the first row. And the narrator said, um, uh, and you know, we have historical, or there's some sort of on screen text, right? We, you know, right. which, which, yes. which sort of is sneaky. And I'm not sure if it's very well earned as if to suggest that this is somehow history because here is a little historical, but certainly a, a familiar, um, you know, mode for, "Quote unquote history movies from movies that you know pretend to have anything to say about actual life. You know we're used to these types of codas where we have this is what happened next to this character. I right, think it's but, you know playing within that convention. So, but it's suggesting that what you have just seen and is, describe it, what happened. What happens? What do we see in the text? What? Well, it says that it, the text says that uh, uh, Khrushchev got control of the committee in 1953 or 1954." And he was in charge of it until '64, until um, uh, Anatol, uh, Leonid Brezhnev took over. And then the camera pulls in a little bit, and you see Brezhnev, a darker, younger figure with giant hands and uh, Very bushy si- eyebrows. Bushy eyebrows, sitting in the row behind him, kind of looking down at Steve Buscemi's bald head. So, I mean, it suggests that what you viewers have seen is is um, history, and I don't think you've seen. History. You've seen, um, you've seen a kind of, you know. I know you don't think it's in, but it's it, it is an exaggeration of history in the sense that nobody can tell me that when these guys were making these decisions, um, uh, they were, uh, you know, they were they were doing it while, while bodies were actually rolling in front of them. Their bodies might have been rolling in prisons in the building next door, but it wasn't in front of them as if they're in an Sid Caesar. Hmm. A film that to suggest that is to suggest that uh, t- terrible history uh, didn't happen because we can uh, the way it did because we can make a joke out of it this way. So there's there's something going on there, some kind of visual prestidigitation that I think is dangerous. Yeah, I, I think well, I agree that that final moment is a very somber one and implies to me. You know, you know, we should talk about the difference between uh, the characterizations of Khrushchev and, and Berea, because I think that it's, it's, a, it's a pretty fascinating one, in that the quote-unquote hero of this movie, the person we follow throughout, the ultimate victor, uh, I don't think is, you know, any, you know, and who is remembered as a reformer, you know, after, uh, after the death of Stalin, when Khrushchev comes to power. You know, I think it's really interesting that this movie shows that each person in that central committee who's vying to be power is offering the same bit of, you know, reforms as what they want to take in their first step of power because they realize that three decades of absolute oppression, you know, the, the in order to win any kind of popular support, you need to ease up on the deportations, you need to eat, ease up on the disappearances. And I think that removes any kind of moral distinction from the ultimate victor, that Khrushchev 
is perhaps a bit cannier, uh, and you know he comes off as simple, and so perhaps people underestimate his intelligence right. uh, in this movie. But he is as canny as Berea. But if anything, Berea is is worse at at hiding the the how much he relishes um, participating in the sadistic kind of uh, just complete domination of the people. You know, maybe there wasn't someone rolling in the stairs right in front of him when he was going down there. But I think what those scenes imply for me is that. Uh, you know, these leaders were, again, like materially complicit in the actual violence committed by this regime. They weren't just in a, you know, some some room in a dasha making decisions that they were removed from and therefore didn't uh, properly appreciate the, the actual impact on the people. You know, they were getting their hands as dirty as they... Uh, and in fact, relishing it, uh, they they were aware of the consequences of their decision making, and I think that the fact that you know that we see at the end Brezhnev looking over Khrushchev's shoulder is that you know this isn't so much history as it is a kind of cycle that all regimes predicated upon power and not upon you know democratic you know responsibility are are succumb to. Well, well, well. I think uh, I, I'm. My take is that is that uh, Berea is really uh, he was the Stalin's enforcer and he was far worse uh, than the others and I think he's the foil for the others and that but that's what gives them a touch of bumbling humanity because Berea has none Berea is the is the maker of the list and you think about how the movie ends because I feel like Berea is the one who you know there is legitimate sympathy kind of elicited for, for Berea winds up becoming a victim to the exact same type of crude disappearance that he has spent so much time uh, perpetuating tonight. Oh, but he's, he's far, he's far worse than them. He, in a sense, is Stalin's extension and there can't be, there can't be a page turned or a chapter opened in the history with, until Berea is dead. And that's, and they, they, they come around to that, but in their bumbling fashion. Um, and I think, you know, uh, you know, it just, it, it suggests that, um, you know, the, uh, uh, they're all killers in a sense, but they got the worst killer has to be removed first. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that, and that's how, that's how that history sort of has come down to us anyway, that he, he, he ran the prisons and had the lists. So let me ask you about the, the hero, about Steve Buscemi's Khrushchev. This is a, again, a, an actor who I think is very familiar from pretty broad comedies going for the past two decades. He had a long you know relationship with Adam Sandler and, and making movies uh, in, in his kind of early nineties and, SNL and, and, wheelhouse, and, but, and but he was, but he was, but he was a killer in, he was a killer in Fargo. In, he was a killer in Fargo. Perhaps a comparable uh, right. role there, but, right. but even, you know, even in Fargo, he's, he's playing, uh, you know, a very, he's going big. Like he is this kind of sniveling and inept, but also really sadistic killer in Fargo who may not be able to, you know, realize all of the his like grand you know his delusions of grandeur but he's certainly someone willing to do some pretty nasty stuff to try to make him happen here Khrushchev is a little bit different he presents more humility than I think the character Mm. in I mean think about and however well he does it I think that's up for debate but you know whenever he goes to um, Stalin's daughter and says I just want you to know you're not going to be hurt. <laughs> you well, know, he's trying to be the person he's going to look after. Well, uh, yeah, and uh, a hero is not the word I would I would use for him, but yeah. but I think his uh, Buscemi's challenge, as well as the challenge for the other actors in the Central Committee, but especially for him because he is the focus of the film, is is how to how to how to uh, how to play this in one moment 
in the midst of horror in the next moment kind of uh uh you know kind of conniving and 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 being humorous i mean it's a weird tone these actors these actors actors they shift their acting octaves or registers up and down all the time i think that's pretty i think that's pretty interesting and uh, and one of the lines that i remember is when when the dust settles uh um svetlana i guess her name is stalin's daughter uh uh, you know who has been assured by every other person in the uh, in the central committee that they will take care of her. Uh, it turns out that Khrushchev has sort of taken care of her, and she turns to him and she says, "I didn't know it would be you," as yeah. if to say, "Only one of you can emerge from this um, jungle." And it's a it's a it's as much as a surprise to the audience as it is to her. I thought it was a pretty nice kind of Wild West moment where the you know the least expected person to rise to the top. Well, of course, you know I think also the savviness of putting this in an actual historical context is that you know we we know that he is the one who is ultimately going to win. It's the movies, the enjoyment and re- reflection that the movie causes, at least for me, is not contingent upon the surprise of who arises but, how how he get how he gets there but I, but i would say just in terms of picking you know picking other folks out of the ensemble there the guy who's who's uh uh whose role really i think in many ways holds it together and and, and gives a kind of focus a focus for the audience is uh jeffrey tambor's uh, Mal- uh malenkov interesting i actually thought that he had the narrowest range of any of the Characters right, but, in... but what was that range? That range was ma- mainly it went from uh, uh, a phasic, dismayed horror to uh, I, I don't know what to say. And of course, that is the only appropriate. That, that's what the audience feels in many ways. That's what's lurking behind the audience laughter is that this is so appalling. Uh, I, I, and I'm in the midst of it, and I just don't and, and don't know what to say. Cool. And then he ends up sort of saying whatever the words are expected of him as the head of the committee. Oh, that's a very generous reading of that character. I feel like he is the minute that he is put on the, the big seat. He, any, uh, <laughs> any concerns that he has immediately go out the window because he is the one who has that taste of power. He's, he's probably, you know, the lightest in the head of any of the carrot, any of the um, right. figures in the committee. So everyone sees him as a puppet that they can control, but you know, he spends more time posing for his, you know, official portrait. Well, that, than he, that's than he that's toward, that, that's towards else. the end, and one of the, one of the moments where you're supposed to laugh. I mean, is is that he walk? You know, he he does have a lot of vanity, and he walks around with <laughs> a little with a little uh, string hanging out from under his uh, his Soviet era um, uh, tunic. It's not a corset; it's a girdle. It's a girdle, <laughs> and you know, he just wants to hold it in, keep it together. <laughs> In every way possible. No, I would. The, so I, I took a course at some point in my life on satire, and somebody said something that has always stuck with me, and that is, um, well, two things. One, um, it's really hard to make a, at least in a, an American film, and this is not an American film, right? This is a British production. So this is so the filmmaker Scottish. I think he's worked primarily in Great Britain, in, in right. Britain, but he, right. um, you know, Steve Buscemi is an American actor. There are a number of Jeffrey Tambor is an American right. actor. There are a number of yeah. American comedians in it. Yeah, a lot of uh, satire, you know, is uh, is something that I think is more English than it is American. You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, some can't remember the guy's name. Well, one of the great Hollywood, uh, I mean, uh, uh, musical writers said satire is called satire because it closes on Saturday night as it just doesn't have a big following. Mm -hmm. But the line that sticks with me is that, uh, 
if the, of, the, of the greatest satirist, if you scratch a satirist, uh, the other side of the coin will be an idealist. So the satire, you know, for it, it's full of humor, like, like Gulliver's Travels. Um, but it suggests um, a kind of ideal or a goal. And I'm not sure what this, what, where the idealism or the, what, what, I, I don't know if this satire in um, Death of Stalin rises to that level. Oh, I see that. One, what, a, what a beautiful insight to share. I, th- I think that is an excellent point about satire, and I see that all over this movie, frankly. Now, I don't think that there are any characters that embody that idealism. Perhaps Svetlana a little bit, even though she comes off as um, you know equally buffoonish and naive at times. Um, I think that she may be the one character who, who, and again, knowing her history, she's, she makes it out of this regime and, and ultimately does migrate to the United States and becomes a writer. Um, but I think that in showing us with such, you know, withering, uh, you know, dark comedy, how, how inept but also how inept these people are at being humans, but how successful they are at being, you know, totalitarian politicians. I think it shows, uh, you know, these are, these are regimes that, that can be toppled, not in that there needs to be like a revolution out in the streets right now, whenever you disagree with the political leader you represent you, but these are humans and quite bumbling humans. And, Eve taking into consideration the magnitude of the suffering that they cause, you know, these are people who like can and must and like need to be deposed of power in order to bring any kind of, uh, you know, sanity back to, uh, you know, to or sanity not back to, but sanity to um, a more kind of ideally governed future. Um, it's not inevitable that the worst of the worst end up on top, but when they do, it looks something like the death of Stalin. It's the, like what? like like a second of the worst ends up. <laughs> so I yeah, I don't know where the people are in this movie. I guess that's my point. Well, yeah, well I think we see them in the opening sequence and in, in the the symphony. I mean the the person who is charged with recording the symphony I think is somewhere in between you know someone with some position of power and it, also someone feeling the boot very strongly upon his head yeah, it, uh, to make something right, the, the, r- the, random and miraculous the two people that represent the kind of ideal that you're talking about are yes the guy the the, the concert master there who has to do a quick recording in, in the opening scene but also the also the woman who writes a note how oh, much yeah. she hates well, stuff. there we go there's her idealism she, yeah but she does she almost she totally disappears in she the does film. pretty she doesn't have so, much to do after that so initial I, note. I rest my case yeah. Um, <laughs> the the last last thing I want to ask you about is um, you know, I'm glad that you share your thoughts on on satire, but I do think that this movie has something um, insightful to say about totalitarianism, uh, and that is that totalitarianism is dependent upon a flimsiness of truth. That's kind of the most important aspect of a totalitarian regime, like what happened in the Soviet Union. But I think that could apply to uh, you know to regimes all around the world, all, all throughout history. That what these people, you know, how they maintain their power is to destabilize the understanding of what is true. Uh, And what is true winds up becoming synonymous with who is in power and who's writing the history books. Uh, Did that that not resonate with you at all? Because even even beneath the comedy, I found, you know, this is, this is the fundamental problem with uh, uh, this kind of what's leading to what allows for the sustained terror of something like, you know, the height of the Soviet Union in, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, is that when you're not allowed to say this is not true. Well, but 
what's really amazing in in that's emerging as we as we talk about this film is that these these people Bushemi and Mal- Malenkov all, all the people in the central committee they're not talking about any issue there are no policies there's no uh, there's almost no reference whatsoever to what's happening outside of the palace or the prison or the the interiors where the movie takes place all all, all that is at stake is who's on the list who's not on the list who will survive and um you know it, the it's reached the point where the policies and the people nothing matters it's just who's going to look good um and who will emerge and uh, i don't know what message that conveys well i think that's telling about the disconnect perhaps between what these people but are but there's no truth the power going on they're, there they're looking at there's no truth oh, there but there there's what's the truth I mean, there, how about the the uh, accusations of uh, you know treachery that are leveled against Molotov's wife, and then miraculously she is brought back from the dead in order to you know try to win over one person onto you know another committee member's side. But and her then, treachery, her treachery, is just sort of saying the wrong thing that insults Stalin. Well, that well, therein it, lies it, the, it's not, the, it, it's the not, terror. It's not. It's not saying don't don't wipe out the doctors. It's not the. It's it's not anybody. I mean, the only person who does something or, or says the truth is the is the musician who says you have killed my brother you have killed my father i know it's going to cost me my life but i hate you and it's important for me to say that she puts it into the sleeve of the recording that they give to stalin and stalin opens it up and he reads it and he laughs hysterically and ironically the truth gives him his stroke so there you go there we go (laughs) the i mean i do think that yeah there's in, Do- in Doctor Strangelove, is there much talk about and the one policy that may be referenced in that movie is whether or not the Soviets have poisoned the water supply with chlorine? I mean, these in these uh, kind of backstage political dramas, I th- you know, not that this is a satire, but there's not a lot of talk in, say, King Lear or something about what the policies are for the domain in which these characters are ruling. It's all about, you know, how does one attain the ultimate level of power within this particular political regime? What what do you have to um but but that's what, what the, that's why there's a defect here because in this movie we know the actual history and in Lear and in Strange Love and those others, we're dealing with a we're 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 on a more uh a mythical level. Mm. That's that's an interesting point. Well um I so appreciate your perspective, as always, Alan, <laughs> even though I respectfully disagree. But is right. it, is this one that gets a middling recommendation? Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, certainly in terms of screenplay writing, perhaps your moral concerns aside, it was, a you know, pretty sharply written. Yeah, no, it's written well. And uh, and <laughs> but you should read the comic book first. Read the comic book. Have you read the comic book? <laughs> no, I haven't uh, read the comic right. book. But I've read I've read uh, Asip Mandelstam's wife's uh, uh description of life in 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 that era there we go alan recommends darkness at noon i recommend death of stalin uh <laughs> alan it's a pleasure to have you back here it's a pleasure to be back here and uh we will get back to you listeners soon hopefully with a another review of a movie playing in new haven or conversations with folks in new haven making movies check out deep focus radio for deepfocusradio.com for over two years of conversations about movies in new haven and alan we will talk with you soon thank you tom mm-hmm.